and welcome to another edition of the Sitcom Club. Joining myself, Mooncat, is Europa Ocho. Hello. Now, today, we have been through purgatory and back, have we not? You live in Glasgow, don't go throwing Catholic concepts like purgatory around. You never know. (laughs) (laughs) The point is that we have been on the lookout for a particular show ever since we started doing the Sitcom Club. We? Okay, me. Ever since we started doing the Sitcom Club two years ago, there's one particular show that had eluded us for a long time. It was one of those shows that was known sort of by reputation. It was, oh, do you remember that weird thing with Fusty Kendall's an American? God, what was that thing called? Now, the thing was called Honey for Tea, and it was made in 1994 by the BBC. And a few weeks ago, we did finally stumble across the entire series. Ocho and I have now watched the entire series. To use an old, I suppose you would say, what advertising expression, we watched it so you don't have to. And coincidentally, before we'd found Honey for Tea, we stumbled across a show which was made in 1990 and then held back for transmission by two years, Land of Hope and Gloria, with Sheila Ferguson for ITV. And that has a remarkably similar premise. I think I actually proposed this before on an earlier podcast. Did you? I think I remember you mentioning Honey for Tea and sort of saying, shall we do it? And I said, well, if we do, we have to do Land of Hope and Glory at the same time. And you being very, very upset by the idea. Well, I do not recall this conversation, but dear listener, if you remember exactly where this is in the Sitcom Club archives, then please let us know. Or don't, because it will cause me embarrassment. Anyway, that is exactly what we're doing today. We are looking at two shows, remarkably similar, Honey for Tea, Land of Hope and Gloria. They are four years apart in production, two years apart in transmission. As of yet, Nyler has enjoyed a DVD release. Or repeat... Or a BAFTA. <laughs> Nobel Prize is nary a one. <laughs> okay, so which are we going to start with? Let's start with Honey for Tea, because... <laughs> Land of Hope and Gloria, for those who remember it or have heard of it, it's got a pretty poor reputation. How bad is Honey for Tea? We ended up sort of like, let, let's save Land of Hope and Gloria for after Honey for Tea. It's kind of like dessert. <laughs> <laughs> You remember that time you watched Enemy at the Door and you had to watch an audience with Bruce Forsyth to lift you up? <laughs> <laughs> Honey for Tea is so bad that Land of Hope and Gloria is sweet relief. <laughs> no, no, with the non-sneering approach to old television, but I really did not enjoy Honey for Tea and I think it fails on a lot of really fundamental levels. Okay, now let's set the scene. Okay, so this is from... Pretty much exactly 21 years ago. It began in the middle of March in 1994. And there are seven episodes, and it features the aforementioned Felicity Kendall as Nancy Belasco. She is an American, as we've already established, and her son, Jake, they come over to Cambridge as a result of some bullshit. It's basically her husband's died. I can actually keep track of this. What's happened is they've been living the high life in Los Angeles. But she's got an accent as if she's from the Bronx. Yes. My wife did find me watching one of these. That sounds... (laughs) (laughs) My (laughs) ex-wife. She came and I said, why is she talking that way? I was saying, oh, she's an English actress. She said, well, I recognize her. And I said, she's supposed to be from LA. And she went, no, it is. It's a very East Coast kind of 
voice. And this is the first place it falls down. You've got a brassy American character. And while it is perfectly feasible to cast outside of the characteristics of the character, Felicity Kendall has problems with the accent. She's doing an American accent, her idea of an American accent. I don't think it's controversial to say that, certainly considering the relative size of the two places. You'd be surprised how few accents there are here, even if there are more. When I say to Americans, you know, in, in the UK, it is possible to drive for half an hour and find yourself somewhere where people don't sound like you and hate you for it. We like her uh, accent. She, she's out by a good two, three thousand miles. Right. Her husband has died. He was a rich man. They were living a good lifestyle. He dies every but week. But he was a corporate... <laughs> Get to the opening title. She calls him some sort of corporate crook, so I'm guessing that he was he managed investments in a slightly shady offshore fashion. He didn't pay his taxes, so upon his death, the IRS have come in and apparently reduced them to poverty. However, during the time he did have money to throw around, he donated a lot of money to St. Mud's College, Cambridge, in the belief that this somehow conveyed certain class and legitimacy upon him. Even his wife was born in Cambridge, though apparently she moved to the US at a very young age. So I don't know if this was some sort of concession. Felicity Kendall is somehow English. I don't know. I'd be curious to know if that was in the original pitch document. So anyway, he's donated a lot of money to St. Maud's College, Cambridge. And being aware of this, Nancy and her son Jake have come over saying, there's no such thing as a free lunch, we've donated a lot of money, I think, maybe you can find a place for us here. And so Nancy gets the deputy bursarship, Jake gets entry to the college, and that's the whole thing. It's like, oh, there are a couple of Americans in this stuffy British institution, the words burn my throat! (laughs) I'm just so sick of... I guess maybe it started in the 80s and it really started rolling on in the 90s. This idea of, oh, let's just stop being so English. Let's be more like Americans. Let's go on gladiators and go, (laughs) And there's always that suspicion that it's just, let's lie down to marketing. That's why. Because if you're reserved, if you have a certain emotional distance from things... You can't be marketed to. Marketing just goes straight for your drives. Is this not just part of the inevitable fallout, I suppose you would say, from technology being what it is? For example, things like, say, Happy Days or Different Strokes or things like that. American shows that would turn up quite often in peak time on British TV. They were sort of the exception rather than the rule. Well, it's one thing to see American stuff and say, oh, that's cool. I wish I could be like that. I wish I could have a little part of that. But then there seemed to come this self-flagellation. I really hate the word stuffy. Yes. Stuffy's a name for a cartoon mouse. It's not a name for an emotion. Stuffy is a negative way of saying standards. I'm just saying that King Ralph is one of the most offensive things vomited out of the emotionally incontinent machine. (laughs) <laughs> that we call pop culture. But this is just the way of it, isn't it? I mean, ever since Sky Channel started, and they were pumping out their stateside horseshit 24-7, I mean, it's just that's the way of it now, isn't it? I mean, you can have television channels in the UK that just exist solely of American material. But I, th- I think that's almost got worse in recent years. Every drama seems to have its eye on export. 
I mean, Downton Abbey's a big hit over here. And yes, maybe part of me sick of saying to people, you know, we do have pizzas. And it's a bit snobbish of me because well, obviously there are things in American culture I'm not entirely picking up on. I've completely lost my thread now. Well, okay. British culture now, a lot of British television I'm seeing seems happy to steer within the boundaries set by foreign perceptions of British culture. They're less likely to be making things that would be completely foreign. Would Minder really be export friendly? I think Minder is, is really due for a re-examination. Now, what about Head of the Class? Head of the Class? <laughs> what? ABC sitcom from late 1980s about a school in Manhattan and, and the last couple of series. Bi- did, did the BBC stop showing that before Billy Connolly came on it? Oh, what a goof, eh? They were kicking themselves. Didn't he have his own American sitcom, possibly called he, well, that Billy? That was a spin-off. Yes, that's right. It was a spin-off called Billy. Anyway, problem with Honey for Tea is that it's made by people who don't understand Americans and hate British people. A good mixture. Now, when did we talk about the opening titles? Is it made in some sort of Quantel? I expect you to be more technically aware. That weird thing of all the pictures sliding by. Right, yeah, well, it's, it's like, okay, visual, visualise this, if you will. We've got a series of still frames and, and sort of slightly moving frames, but not very fast. And this is all getting across the whole story of Nancy before she arrives at the gates of the college. So we've got Americans in wartime, GI brides. Look, it's America, and there's Nancy, and she's doing some shopping, and there's her husband. Hang on a second, her husband's just collapsed at the table every bloody week. Keeled over and died on camera, I know. it's It doesn't really get you ready to laugh. Plane, taxi. Plane, taxi tells you everything you need to know. Plane, they get on a plane. Way, well, hey, taxi, they're at Cambridge. So... The other people in the show, apart from Felicity Kendall and her son Jake, who's played by Patrick McCulloch... Only has three credits on the IMDb, two of which are American shows, so I think he's the real thing. So he's an American? I presume so. Now, one person who is not an American, amongst others, is Nigel Levalliant. Now, am I pronouncing that correctly? Is it Levalliant? Levalliant? There's no I in the second half of the name, so I think it's Levalliant. Well, I I assume it's derived from Levalliant. Well, I know how to pronounce him... it if it was French, but um, it's V A I double L. Okay, well, I'm going to call A-N-T. him Nigel. N T. Nigel Levaillant. 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 I'm going to call him Nigel Leviathan. Let's call him Nigel. Dangerfield. Right? So, Dangerfield, he is Professor Latimer, and there's a bit of a sort of. He was also in a commercial for Schweppes. Which I saw because I found a file on my computer, TSW, Adverts and Continuity. And I thought, well, I've got a bit of time to kill before Mooncat's available to record this. Just to fill in the time, <laughs> I'll take a look at Gus Honeybun and Friends. And there he turned up, uh, sneering at somebody with a file effects. Dangerfield, he's Professor Latimer, and there's a bit of a willy, won't they? Hmm, go on for out. And you've also got the redeeming factor in this entire series, Leslie Phillips, good old Casanova 73, as Sir Dickie Hobhouse, Grandmaster of the Dons, or whatever the hell it is. Also, Dr. Basil Quinn, the purser, he is Alan David, who we mentioned previously from The Squirrels. And Caroline Harker is Lucy Courtney, and already I can feel the show beginning to bulge at the seams with the number of characters we're supposed to pay attention to and care about. Well, we'll come back to that later on, because there's a bit of funny business going on towards the end. But anyway, that's the basic setup. So you've got Nancy, she's 
in italics, typical American as far as a British TV show is concerned. She's loud and brassy and says things that other people would only think, doesn't really care for polite conversation or convention and thinks that all those kind of things are just outmoded, stuffy affairs, causes all manner of mild embarrassment. She's ignorant for the sake of weak jokes. That continues over seven episodes. I was very disappointed to find out that this actually did stay in its slot at 7pm on Sundays throughout its entire run. You love the words moved to a less competitive time slot, don't you? Oh, nothing makes me happier. And there was one point, the only point where I actually genuinely enjoyed this series is when the continuity announcer says, Holy for tea, we'll be back in two weeks' time. I thought, yes! Fantastic! Right then, I was straight onto the Daily Mirror database. I'm searching all the dates. I'm thinking, right, where did it end up? Where did it end up? Did it end up at the first date? 2.35pm? Did it end up in the middle of the sign zone? Did it go behind the encryption on BBC Select? No, damn it! It was just a bank holiday weekend. They had a film on and it came back in the same slot next week. Bollocks. Speaking of continuity announcements over the end credits, the biggest laugh in episode one is the continuity announcement. Felicity Kendall is also currently starring at the Globe Theatre, Shaftesbury Avenue in an absolute turkey. I think I said to you at the time, it's just a pity that the studio audience wasn't still on hand yes. to hear that. <laughs> it's not like every episode is self-contained. There are some stories that run through. Jake trying to get with Lucy, but not really understanding her ways, because she's sort of, what would you say? Is she a sort of upper class? I suppose you would say she is. For the most part, maybe about two or three characters, everybody's upper class in this. Okay, yes, it's a college in Cambridge. It's another thing that sets my class obsession senses tingling, that you have this excuse for Americans and British people, and the British people are all posh. They do, in subsequent episodes, introduce a couple of, I suppose you would say, working class characters, though even then they're not regulars. Alan David is about as earthy as it gets for the most part. Yes, he is, isn't he? Yeah. And so I think part of the problem is is that, right, okay, fish out of water, that's always good. Clash of cultures, that's usually good for a sitcom. But you have something where it's just insulting to both cultures. The Americans are shown as being more stupid than they need to be. The British people are supposed to be more snobby and unpleasant than they need to be because Nigel of... Danger Mouse. His character, he's not nice. And I don't think it's a case of she finally breaks down his defences. Or by the time that happens, I've lost interest. By episode three, I don't really want to be watching anymore, and I'm only watching because I'm watching it for the sitcom club. But the problem is then, it's a clash of cultures from which a pretty large chunk of your audience is distanced. Both cultures. Are we missing our conduit? You know, we've spoken many times about shows having sort of our person who arrived The identification character. Exactly. Now, Nancy is not really our identification character. Yes, she's going to have lots of stuff explained to her, and by extension, we're going to have lots of stuff explained to us. But because it's all been filtered through herself, it's not quite the same, is it? It doesn't really work in terms of a device to clue you up because you've been asked to take in all the information, but also she's then coming back at it and saying, oh, that's bloody stupid pish, what are you doing that for, and all this kind of stuff. Instead of all that nonsense in the opening titles being repeated week after week after week, I wonder if there was just a sort of sensible way that they could have got across everything about Cambridge life. You're going to mention in... Open All Night, aren't you? 
Well, I was just testing this the... This is the story arch. of Nancy Velasco and I don't Honey know. for Tea. Honey for tea, honey for tea, honey for tea, honey for tea, honey for... Oh, boy. <laughs> I don't see anything wrong with that. But no, I mean, just like a little voiceover at the beginning. You can jump ahead to Land of Hope and Gloria for just a second. There's a storyline in Land of Hope and Gloria concerning visitors to the Great Hall, or whatever it's called, getting guided tours of the place. And of course, they're being filled in on this is what, this is what this is, and so on. This is how long this has been here for. Something like that in the first two or three minutes would have been bloody marvellous, wouldn't it? Just get across to the viewer all the information you need to know about this Cambridge College and the fact that it is relatively stuffy, even as far as Cambridge Colleges are concerned and so on. Convey all that information in the opening few minutes before Nancy turns up. And then you can concentrate on the clash of cultures. Because as you say, it's not a background that most viewers are going to be particularly clued up on. There's two ways of doing it, which is somebody we recognise in a culture we don't, somebody we don't recognise in a culture we do, their guilelessness will make interesting points. They will look at the familiar in an unfamiliar way. Whereas in this, it's somebody from a culture we don't recognise in a culture that a lot of us also don't recognise, having things we don't know explained to her. And everybody's ignorance and knowledge just shrinks and expands to fit their personality in the scene at the time to get a joke in. Dangerfield's character is a professor of English, isn't he? And talks about how Shakespeare is the best thing ever. So fine, we've got this whole idea that he doesn't understand culture after about 1613. But then at one point he says, Scotty, beam me up. No, no, you're dealing in broad strokes. You establish something about a character. If you're going to bring something out of character in, it had better be fantastic or acknowledged. Is there not a name for that kind of thing, though? A sort of classification for, I suppose you would say, just general knowledge. In other words, if I was to name any contestant from the last series of The Voice that just finished... It's not real life. I hold him to a different standard. He has to be more consistent. I know inconsistency in fictional characters in long-running narratives can actually make them richer, but sometimes it just seems sloppy and in that case it just seems sloppy that he would so casually drop a star trek reference what i'm getting at is if he's going to drop a star trek reference then no no, no i'm, I'm going to no, devil's advocate and we no 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 i'm not you, no i'm not you, you no, need no, no. a devil's haircut no. <laughs> <laughs> who's it did the elbow wasn't it or somebody <laughs> anyway i'm going to give dangerfield a pass on that because Knowing of the No, existence. it's part of a pattern in this, though. Because I'm now going to go to Jake. Jake is probably the worst character for suddenly not knowing things or suddenly knowing just enough to not know something. You could have just stopped at worst character. I mean, that bit where... Uh, is it Lucy's character where it said, oh, her father's a duke, and he goes, a duke, I love jazz. It's like, oh. Nobody would make that mistake. No. He's a 19-year-old from L.A., why does he have a Pittsburgh sweatshirt? Why does Nancy have a Dallas sweatshirt? I have a relation to support the Pittsburgh Steelers. I would have picked up on that, but I, I know people, this is Orange County, not LA County, but I do know people in California who would be very happy to be seen wearing a Pittsburgh Steelers t-shirt and frequently are. So I can't pick up on that. But here is a really deadly case of bizarrely specific ignorance. Nancy goes out to buy him a gown, one of those black academic jobbies, and I think there's some humour about 
buying the right one, and I think possibly she actually buys him the wrong one anyway. Jake does not see this gown. Jake is not supposed to know anything about Cambridge culture. So, teenager from LA, say the word gown, he's going to think dress. Nancy mentions, I've bought you a gown. And he immediately mentions, oh great, I can dress up as Batman. How did you know that a gown referred to a black cape? (laughs) Jake? The obvious joke there would be, I'm not a cross-dresser and I'm not going to a prom. My principal problem with Jake is that he delivers the worst line in the entire series. And for this series, that's quite an achievement. When Lucy invites him to a house party and he says, Oh, I have to bring a house? Now that deserved a minute's silence on the occasion of its broadcast, if not a full-on BBC Trust inquiry. There was one point where I did start to weaken. I actually said to yourself, episode 5 has legitimately got some laughs in it. And I still maintain that that is the case. Principally because the scenes with Leslie Phillips are not at all bad. And this show needed much more of him and a lot less of the 35mm walking around the gardens and looking sort of pensive and saying, Oh, you British, I don't understand you. There's one particular scene where they're talking about homeless people residing in the local area and they're trying to work out how they can get them to move on. And you've got three old dons, one of whom is Bill Wallace. Now, you'll have seen Bill Wallace in lots of things. I tend to sort of associate him as Minister for Sport in Yes, Prime Minister. I have a documentary about MR James which is presented by him because I need to watch it again because I'm pretty sure there's a little section of the documentary where they go, he was probably gay. There's no actual evidence for it, but MR James was probably gay. <laughs> I might be being completely unfair. I need to watch that again to see if they are quite so... Well, you know, he was a bit rarefied and he was a don and all that, so yeah, probably gay. <laughs> They're discussing what to do about these homeless squatters and eventually they agree upon the idea of an electrified fence and this leads to Alan Davis delivering the line of the series it may well electrocute a few pissing dogs now if there'd be more of that then (laughs) Honey for Tea would have been a classic and would run on gold every single day unfortunately there wasn't so look Nancy is an LA lady who lunches she's one of the 1% why is she so compassionate about the homeless? I'm pretty sure she'll have had some of them killed. We're going to have to talk about Felicity Kendall's accent again. I actually had difficulty understanding her at times. There's a bit where she's, I, I guess she's saying poor people, but it sounds like she's saying poo people. <laughs> I mean, it would have been quite funny if Felicity Kendall's accent had drifted over the course of seven weeks from one end of the States to another. And they'd done it, they'd genuinely done it on purpose. Maybe not in a straight line. If you like. Maybe like gone yeah. down, down through the deep south. Maybe actually dipped, gone into Mexico for a bit. Oh, no, okay. Now, I meant to ask you about this. There are some references to Mexico towards the end of the series because there's talk about... Racist. Well, there's talk about <laughs> Nancy wanting to get a cleaner and straight away Jake's like, oh, you mean like a Mexican and so on. Oh, oh yeah. That, that, are there I any lines that would need to be trimmed here? The, the thing is, is that he lets out a stream of Spanish nonsense. He calls a woman amigo. The way he behaves, if he's from LA, if he's from Southern California, I, it's it's how to describe it. Um, it would be a bit like meeting somebody, you know, an Asian, Asian in the British sense, 
and immediately doing oh goodness gracious me kind of stuff. You mean it's like I, I don't think Jake would do that because <laughs> <laughs> that's where I've been going wrong. The whole flood there of stereotype that Jake comes out with is unremarkable in British comedy and culture. I do occasionally mention to people over here that the whole idea of being racist against Latinos doesn't really exist in Britain because we don't have enough of them to notice. It might not still be the case, but certainly I think even this century, the idea of advertising salsa with a guy who's like got a poncho and I'm a Mexican bandido, do that in Britain. It's not going to be particularly controversial. Well, there was that advert with what a mariachi band playing. Don't you want oh, me, baby? Oh yeah, I know. I did. Yeah, I didn't like that. Yeah. On the flip side of that, the character of Apu in in The Simpsons is just beginning to become controversial. Here would have been controversial in Britain way, way before. Oh, it's a uh, it's an Asian shopkeeper. Oh, and it's played by a ostensibly white guy, not Hank Azaria. I think he might be Latino himself. I'm not sure. So I'm not pointing the finger. I'm saying different cultural sensitivities in different places, I don't think Jake would just come out and go, hey, mi amigo, all that kind of stuff. So that's jarring. Another example of of how stupid Jake is, and he's way stupider than he should be, Uh, he has this thing called a disputation, which I guess is whether he's worthy to enter the college and devil's advocacy against him. And he really thinks that walking in and going, hey, how are you doing, give me five, is the way to come in and address an academic judgment on him. No. There are times when Jake's stupidity seems just to suit the scene. You'd think there, no, there you, are also you a few bits when Nancy clueless. just goes into expository soliloquies. At the end it's revealed that she's supposed to be talking to her dead husband, but it really just does seem like on walks Nancy explains well again, do a voiceover. Give us all a cassette to listen to. <laughs> I just find it too crowded as well. Right, LA teenager goes to Cambridge College. There's a sitcom in that. LA woman goes to Cambridge College, becomes deputy bursar. There's a sitcom in that. Both of them together, things just start to fall apart, and then it turns into royal flush. Now, we've got some funny business going on towards the end of the series. In episode six, she's saying, oh, I can't be doing with all this dust. And so she advertises for cleaner. (sighs) That was obvious. Well, eh? What? The big reveal. Oh, yes, right. A lady applies for the job. She's spending more time at the place than Nancy has asked, and she's not paying her for it, and so on. And then the big reveal comes, episode 7, oh, I'm your mom. thing is that all this starts in episode 6. It isn't necessarily the focal point of a lot of episode 6. And then when the big reveal comes in episode 7, then they have a little sort of heart-to-heart, then it's just forgotten about. Because... Nancy then says, oh, I'm feeling homesick. I just want to get out of here. I want to go home. And so on. And like and all again, that business... a perfect excuse for her to leave, if you want that tension of is she going to leave, is the fact that she's met her mother again. And like, I have to get away because we have catching up to do. I mean, there's just so much. Maybe there's paperwork she needs to fill out. Or I actually can't stay here anymore. It's too upsetting because now I found out my mother, who I thought had died, had actually just let me be taken away by my father to grow up near Rodeo Drive. Yeah, all that's just sort of junked halfway through episode 7, so I've got a funny old theory that this was initially crafted as a six-part series, and I think that this is the basis of a sort of bolt-on episode, which is then spilled over into episode 7. That's what it feels like. A couple of other things that irritate me. Jake is immediately attracted to Lucy, but Lucy also has a boyfriend, Charlie, or 
is he a boyfriend or does he just think he's her boyfriend? There's a bit of competition for the affections of Lucy. Episode one, Lucy, who has some staff role at the college. After Jake has signed on, she then reveals that they can't date because staff and students can't date. But hang on a minute. <laughs> what about Charlie and what about Jake at the end? Because they get, they get it together. I know we're dropping spoilers. It's not even hand-waved. You told us this relationship was not going to happen and then you've contradicted it. You haven't kept it straight. It's just That's what I mean about it failing on really basic levels. I was more upset that they missed such an obvious gag in that last episode. There's this scene right at the beginning where Nancy is on the phone and she's just wandered into Professor Latimer's apartment because, of course, they've got a Jason apartment. She just wandered into his apartment, let herself in and taken his phone and then dragged it over to her place. Dangerfield, he turns up and he's sort of looking and what have you and saying, oh, what are you doing on my phone? How did you get into my flat? And so on and so on. I was thinking, God damn it, why didn't you have Dangerfield turn up with a big pile of essays to mark so he can't see where he's going and then he just trips straight over the phone wire and all the paper goes up onto the floor and he's like a huge big comedy pratfall. Perfect! Because he's in the background. It would have been fabulous, but no. I mean, why not, for God's sake? Also, the old cliche of going into somebody's bedroom, the person is in bed, person stands at the doorway talking to them, and then suddenly, oh, there's somebody else in the bed with them. I did that twice. Exactly. Different person, different bed, but it's, no, that's it, enough, done. So, Honey for Tea, as it stands, has only had one series. There's no good reason why it shouldn't come back for a second. Yeah, point still up in all hours, still Honey for Tea. <sighs> and so compared to Honey for Tea, Land of Hope and Gloria is porridge. <laughs> What's the best way to explain the difference? I think you need to start with the commissioning process in a lift. Wasn't it in a lift? So this is from the very, very fine Radio Times Guide to TV Comedy by Mark Lewison. Land of Hope and Gloria apparently came about when Sheila Ferguson of the Three Degrees, told an executive at Thames that there were too few starring roles for black women in British TV comedy. I've heard that story told elsewhere, and for some reason I've got it into my head that it happened in a lift and the executive in question was John Howard Davis. So I'm just going to take that as read. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. John Howard Davis got into a lift, turned around there with Sheila Ferguson, and she straight away got onto him, and before the lift had arrived at his destination, Land of Hope and Glory had been commissioned. There are lots of things we can say about this show. In comparison with Honey for Tea, one good thing about it is that it doesn't have any pretensions. There's none of that 35mm film, oh, look at the... Splendor. I don't want to contradict you for the sake of it, but I'm pretty sure Honey for Tea is Super 16. Oh, whatever. So you've got all that kind of stuff going on in Honey for Tea, and it's all trying to look semi-sophisticated. Nothing like that going on here. They do have some location shots inside a particular old hall. Note to editor, insert name of what the hell Beaumont House actually was here. You've got some location shots, but it's all VT, and the rest of it's all done in Teddington, so it all looks nice. It's three walls and a studio audience, and it's all good, robustious fun. Thing is, about Land of Hope and Gloria, is that it was actually made in 1990. Yet it wasn't transmitted until the summer of 1992. Now, we could speculate that if things had worked out differently, Land of Hope and Gloria may never have been seen. It's just speculation on my part, but 
in the interim between Land of Hope and Gloria being made and being shown, Thames just happened to lose its franchise to broadcast. And I'm not suggesting that by the summer of 1992 they were just throwing out any old shit, but let's face it, probably standards had slightly dropped. Whereas, for example, there are at least two ITV sitcoms which have been made and never shown, circa 2001, for example, this one did eventually end up on the screen. I have another theory. This was shown in June 1992. John Sanderson died in May of 1992. The longer you leave it, the idea of selling it on to another franchise holder to show the following year, it eventually will be revealed as being a show that's been sat on for a certain period of time. Yes, that is true. This was written by Simon Brett, who also wrote After Henry, which we'll have to talk about at some point in the future. You've been watching After Henry recently. Yes, I have all the series because my wife likes it, so I have all five series. So, the setup. Beaumont House is a stately home still owned by the Hope Beaumont family, so it is still somebody's house, but as with these large stately homes, it is open, certain parts of it are open to the public at certain times of year, certain times of day. I guess it must be held in trust. It's not being run very well. It's being run by a crusty old brigadier in his crusty old way. Example, he has a file labelled Finax. That file apparently is where you put requests to be filed under Forget It, Not A Chance Sunshine. And apparently the place is losing money. When the brigadier dies, the trustees decide this is a perfect opportunity to shake the place up. So they invite sassy American woman Gloria Hepburn to come in and run it and tough, streetwise, American commercial lines. And she's not from LA, she's from Philadelphia. So she comes in and shakes things up, and of course, some of the staff members take against this. And Nanny Princeton, who I don't think is staff, I think she just lives there because she is the nanny of the current owner of the house, is the worst of all for this, and thinks that social equality is a bad thing. And that brings us to another thing I remember about this at the time. Remember No Place Like Home? And the thing I remembered at the time was people complaining about the perceived racism. Land of Hope and Glory, I don't think I watched it, but the thing I remember people complaining about at the time was the lack of racism. Not so much a case of, hey, where's my racism? I came here to sit down to a nice plate of steaming bigotry. I pay my license fee, goddammit. Nanny Princeton's opinions on all social movement after the First World War is so reactionary... And yet, at no point is Gloria's colour mentioned. And of course, it would sour the atmosphere (laughs) to have Nanny Princeton, who's supposed to be a lovable curmudgeon, to come out with something horrifically bigoted, but it then sits weirdly with the character. I think they needed to make her a bit more blustery. Stop having her give horrible long speeches about how everybody should know their place and the Empire was best, because you're going to immediately run aground then with that... That was the complaint at the time, anyway, in some letters I saw. Well, I mean, the choice is, as you suggested there, or just have her being horribly racist through it, all six episodes. I, for one, want to see this episode of Right to Reply in which this issue is raised. I don't remember it being a Right to Reply. I remember it being a letter in a print journal. Oracle, surely. Okay, so that's the basic setup. You've got Gloria coming in and saying, well, you're a share a shite aren't you you need to buck up your ideas and she's got these thoughts about improving business 
there's not really a great deal in terms of development of the characters throughout the series. You pretty much know everything about everybody from the end of episode one. But because it doesn't take itself too seriously, it's much more bearable. Here are the the things where it gains over Honey for Tea. One, Sheila Ferguson's Philadelphia accent is more convincing than Felicity Kendall's LA accent. I think there's a reason now, for that. Yes, there is a reason for that. <laughs> no, no credit to Sheila Ferguson for her superior research on how to sound like being from Philadelphia. It does mean that she doesn't have to concentrate on acting and doing the accent at the same time. Sheila Ferguson's got presence. She's very likable, despite the way her character's written. I, I think Gloria comes across as way more arrogant and confrontational at times. It's not likable, and somehow, despite this... I wasn't thinking, oh, God, just get her off screen. I was just thinking, no, just let her loosen up a little. Andrew Bicknell as Gerald Hort Beaumont. I guess we could say that he is the Gloria counterpart to Honey Fatty's Nigel Dangerfield. He is likeable. He's posh, he's English, but he's nice. He's open to new experiences. He understands the need for this place to update some of its ways. And he is a very positive view of a certain kind of upper-class Englishman. So we don't have that problem that he is always sneering. Well, actually, back to the uh, comeback Mrs. Noah problem, because he's being all confrontational with her in the closing song. (laughs) Which does not reflect his attitude towards her in the main show. He actually should be having an argument with Nanny Princeton in that closing theme, shouldn't he? Yes, yeah. Now, not forgetting old Crompton. Ah, John Rapley, who who does turn up in one episode of Honey for Tea. And Spats. And Nightingales. Good old John Rapley. Yeah, Crompton, who's the gardener, and he is perfectly fine with all this. I think he's taken a little bit of a shine to Gloria. And you've got Daphne Oxenford as well, who is evil, and, and she's more on Nanny Princeton's side, but she's involved in the day-to-day administration. And then there's Vanessa, the played by Vivian Drake, who is unnecessary. <laughs> Well, I think that she sort of acts as a sympathetic ear to Gloria. I keep forgetting she's there. But she can hear little details. Gloria can relate little details to her about what she's planning to do next, rather than having to have some sort of Nancy-style internal monologue. But the, the, the problems it has it, in like, common with Honey for Tea. One, of course, you just have this constant, you Americans are rubbish, you British people are rubbish. Again, there's just too much insulting of both sides, and I don't find either of them funny. There's quite a lot of weak humour. Nanny Princeton says fix instead of fax, because fax machines are hot technology in 1992. The studio audience reacts way too much. I don't mind that. I don't mind... We call them now Nelly audiences, really. I, I have an interesting theory, though, here, about why studio audiences going out of fashion might be a bad thing for comedy as a whole. The studio audience maximizes reaction, but a bad comedy with people laughing loudly at it, looks phony. And I think it will show up poor comedy quite well. Now, of course, you have these no laugh track shows, they're more naturalistic, and you have articles on comedy that genuinely say things like, well, who says you need to laugh at comedy? I think more poor humour gets under the radar because there isn't any laugh track there going, hang on a minute, I can suddenly see the disparity between the reaction it wants me to have and the reaction it's getting in the studio. I will not stand for this. Now, you said episode five of Honey for Tea was okay. You're wrong. Episode three of Land of Hope and Gloria works. 
there's a nice, clever bit of hiding in plain sight a piece of information that would make the ending way more predictable. It's very good at sort of leading us to a predictable ending and then saying, oh, you forgot about this. We do have the worry that we might be about to see Crompton relaxing the man's way. <laughs> Let's focus on episode three. The idea is instead of having a guide, which of course is Evelyn, who apparently is terribly boring, we've seen a little example of her just reeling off dates, that kind of stuff. There is an interesting bit where she points to an authentic Jacobean Q dot. Watch episode one again. She raises a finger and right above it, <laughs> the Q dot is there flashing away. <laughs> one thought is how can we get people moving through, get more bodies in and get more bodies through the, the stately home? Give them a cassette on personal stereo and they can listen to that and the cassette will guide them through so it will say if you look here and look there and it'll keep them moving and it'll get more people through so they're talking about companies that can copy this cassette for them I don't think they ever talk about where they're going to have it recorded but it's just me who worries about stuff like that so it's going to be Gerald Hope Beaumont taking them on a guided tour and it's like they do all kinds of looks of self-help tape and there's an aerobics tape here and sexy Sylvie the stripper. This is a pornographic tape, but they have to say it's striptease. That's weird. Odd, coy little thing. See, listening to a striptease and they listen to a little bit of it. And I'm guessing it would get quite graphic in places. That was the beginning of the tape. Where the heck is it going to go? And if I remember correctly, they start listening to the tape at the beginning of the advertisement break and if you had one of the special receivers <laughs> on some cable TV areas, you could actually scrub the adverse and continue to listen to the rest of the tape and watch Nanny Princeton's reaction for it. Obviously that's all bollocks, but my god, it would be bloody brilliant if it was true, wouldn't it? Evelyn and Nanny Princeton, who are wanting to sabotage this horrible idea which will get rid of Evelyn's boring guide style, decide to Sabotage the program by making sure the pawn tape goes to the copying place. Striptease. Oh, sorry. The striptease tape <laughs> goes to the copying place instead of the guided tour of Beaumont House. We find out that there's been substitution of tapes for sure when Crompton... <laughs> well, he sits in his greenhouse, doesn't he, with a can? <laughs> He's, he, he sits in Arthur's greenhouse from No Place Like Home. <laughs> He's got himself a nice can of lager and he's going to listen to some audio porn. <laughs> and he's very disappointed when it's actually Gerald Hope Beaumont talking about the house. Oh, what's going to happen is everyone's going to put on the personal stereos and they're going to hear pornography. And it's going to be cringingly embarrassing. And everybody puts on the cassettes and starts doing a perfectly choreographed dance routine. This doesn't add up. It's like, oh no, not the aerobics cassette. It's like, oh no, I salute you, <laughs> Simon Brett. <laughs> you, had, you had that piece of information, you waved it in front of us and then put it away. <laughs> it does raise questions <laughs> as to why they are so perfectly in sync. <laughs> Do you know who they should have got to record the tour? Gerald Harper. What, with the champagne and roses? Yes. Episode two. We're just really recapping Land of Hope and Gloria because, well, again, it's one little thing that raises my spirits with Land of Hope and Gloria as compared to Honey for Tea is when it goes weird. Like the choreographed aerobics routine and like this completely nonsensical plot, which wouldn't hold up in any way, shape or form in real life. Gloria decides that she needs to experience Beaumont House for herself 
as what they call a grockle, which is an outsider, a customer. And so she disguises herself as a pimp. She puts on the big wide hat. She puts on a moustache and sunglasses and a 70s looking suit and starts strutting around. It's really weird. And who's Gerald playing? I think he's a member of Tinker's Rucksack. (laughs) He's got the chin strap beard and he looks all ready for a day in the country. And yeah, she tests herself out on Crompton, but so Crompton, for some reason, does not recognise Gloria just because she's wearing a moustache. This aggressive African-American <laughs> could almost be this other african but no, this one has a moustache. So upon seeing how, how well this has fooled Crompton, Gerald, with his little sort of fishing cap and chinstrap beard, and I think he's got a pair of binoculars... And he looks like somebody who should say "oar" a lot. Yeah, wicked man, (laughs) (laughs) Gerald. What? (laughs) But sure enough, Crompton does not put two and two together. (laughs) So, just to recap here, they are attempting to appear incognito, and yet they have chosen disguises which make them stand out as if they were. Have you ever seen High Anxiety, Mel Brooks film? No, I have not. There's a great moment in that where they have to get through an airport. The police are after them. And they realise the best way of making sure nobody looks at them is to be as annoying as possible. (laughs) Maybe there's an element of that. So they go through the tour and then the big reveal comes. Does Gloria not get back into the office and they still don't recognise her? Yes! (laughs) And it's only when she takes her hat off. Way! It was me all the time. As if it was Kenny Everett pulling off his fake beard. But it's not a bad wee show, is it? It's the kind of show, actually, I could imagine Network releasing. They might get around to it, yeah. Depends. Or maybe Fremantle's going to try and keep that sweet, sweet revenue from the millions that Land of Hope and Glory will certainly sell all to themselves. Actually, one other thing I want to say, because we haven't talked much about John Sanderson, who's a grand dam of sitcom. She's given a John Sanderson-ish part without really much to do with it. I do like the... F- Gloria's surname is Hepburn. Nanny Princeton pronounces it Hebben. <laughs> it just seems to make perfect sense. Should John Sanderson, her character, should she not be more like her character than after Henry, for example? No, no, Eleanor's a monster. No, she's evil. Jack from On the Bus's levels of selfishness and... <laughs> I, can't, I find that hard to believe. No, that I cannot accept. But yes, it's not a bad wee show. It's weak and silly, and if you've set yourself up hoping for anything more than weak and silly, yes, it's going to be a problem. But it's got a certain... Unpretentious is a very good word for it. Just to refer once more to the entry in the Radio Times Guide to Comedy, the final note says, Prince Charles' favourite singing group was believed by the media to be the Three Degrees. There's no saying whether Land of Hope and Gloria was his favourite sitcom. One would suspect not. Maybe we should have taken Land of Hope and Glory on its own terms, rather than with Honey for Tea. It certainly hasn't done a disservice to Land of Hope and Glory by comparing it to Honey for Tea, has it? I'm not comparing it to Faulty Towers, are we? I mean, that was the third one we needed, then, wasn't it? We were talking about how we like to do these things in threes, and we thought, you know, but there must be a third American woman in a stuffy British institution. You think Faulty Towers was it? <laughs> Do you think the other two shows might have suffered from the comparison? <laughs> or do you think we would have ended up saying, Faulty Towers, yeah, it's good, but it's not Land of Hope and Gloria. Where are the pimps? We did look at a couple of other shows to see if we could get a third wheel in here. And one show we looked at 
Freddie and Max was Anne Bancroft and Charlotte Coleman from 1990, and it was written by Clement and Lafrenet. And um, we thought it wasn't quite the same. Was Anne Bancroft? She's like an ex stage and screen star, what have you. It was a bit of a snooze, yeah, but also it wasn't quite the same. She wasn't like shaking up some great old British institution or anything like that. We fought about Two's Company with Philane Stritch and Donald Sindon. I think we will do that at one point, but I think we'll do that as a cast on its own. I mean, maybe we should have got hold of Billy, but you know, Billy? too late now. Oh, I, sorry, I thought you meant the um, <laughs> the American version of Billy Liar, which had been remade with, I think, Steve Gutenberg. Well, yeah, if, if that exists, and yes, we need to get hold of that immediately. Let's do that right now. I have my list of US-UK translations. It was a CBS sitcom, and the opening titles are on YouTube. If I pay $5.99 for CBS All Access, am I going to find Billy on it? I think so. <laughs> came out in 1979, but um, I, I don't know if it benefited from what was happening on NBC in 1979. I don't know if they put it up against Super Train. Could, could you just come up with a quick capsule explanation as to Super Train? It's a drama series about a really impressive train. It's a train with shops on it and a disco. Yeah, now you're interested, right? Hmm? And stay tuned for Pink Lady and Jeff. Later on NBC. Ding, ding, ding. I've just checked one of my regular sources for things, and so far I've only found Billy, as in Billy Conley, an audience of Billy Conley, and Sport Billy. Well, somebody has it because they put the opening titles on YouTube, so... Oh, hang on a second! Oh! No, 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 not that. Unfortunately not. But we can actually get hold of the entire first series of Billy. Billy Conley. I'm not watching Billy. <laughs> but I remember STV showing this. I'm making a big deal about it. It's like, well, he's a big yin and he's cracked American. Well, of course it was a shite. But yeah, they made a big deal about how they'd got hold of Billy before everybody else would beat off the competition. And as you say, the BBC had already knocked the head of the class on the head anyway, so... Well, I don't know how much competition actually was, but he has a plant called Ringo. Played by Derek Deadman. I wish. We'll be back next time, but we're going to choose very carefully. We're definitely going to watch some good sitcoms in this series. We're not going to watch the 19th hole. Not next time, anyway. Maybe eventually. Don't forget, you can get all the previous episodes of the Sitcom Club. I know, they're not episodes. They're editions or shows. And there's now over 70 podcasts in the archive. You can get hold of them all at sitcomclub.com. In the meantime, if you've got anything for us at all, you can tweet us at the Sitcom Club, or you can leave us a message on Facebook. We're there as the Sitcom Club as well. In the meantime, on behalf of Europa Lodro, Mubai, and Hey Home and Co, this has been the Sitcom Club. <laughs>